if you are new here, I would also like to uh, extend a welcome to you. My name is Tim, on staff here at the church. Uh, a great joy to be one of the people who gets to connect with you throughout the week. And so if you put a connect uh, card in the box, uh, maybe myself will get into to contact with you and let you know about our church. Um, before we start, I just want to pray uh, and prepare our hearts for this morning, for this text, and for this sermon. Uh, and so would you, uh, would you close your eyes and, uh, and pray with me this morning? Uh, Father, every single time we come to your word, uh, every single time that, uh, that we meet a new day, uh, our posture towards you, our belief in you, our trust of your scriptures needs to be renewed. God, we need to be able to see you so clearly, because the more clearly we see you and, and know you and love you and worship you, it will lead us to a life of, uh, of obedience and of love and of a, of a response that is necessary for people who have been saved. And so God, I pray this morning that our hearts would be stirred to, uh, to see you anew. Um, God, where there are uh, areas of our life where we aren't seeing you properly or, or relating to you or treating you the way you deserve, God, I pray that you would convict us and that our hearts would see uh, who you really are and that we would live differently because of it. So God, help us now as we come to this text. Would our eyes be opened? Would our hearts be ready to hear what you have to say? And would we be willing, God, to have our hearts change, our, our lives changed, our actions changed because of it? And so, God, we pray that you bless this time. Uh, we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, if you got your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as I was studying and looking at this passage, um, one thing that kind of stood out to me is, is this passage uh, has a, a, great, uh, a great literary device that, that uh, Luke shows off a little bit. But it's also used in, in arguments and really what it is, is it's called the, uh, the red herring fallacy. I don't know if you know what this is. Maybe you, you've heard of it before or used it incorrectly like I used to until this week when I Googled it properly. And anyways, uh, the, the red herring uh, fallacy is basically this. Uh, there's a, a point that somebody's trying to make in an argument. And a red herring is something that goes across in a completely different direction to try and, and change the conversation. To, to try and, and, uh, and throw you off the, the trail that you were going on originally. Uh, it's, it's used in movies all the time where you know, a character shows up and uh, you suddenly see this person and you think, well, that's the bad guy. Like, that's the person because they do something, say something. Right? It's, it's a red herring to throw you off what's really going on. And, and because I uh, read too much about this, I thought you should also know where this whole thing comes from. So there is no such animal uh, called a red herring. There is just something called a herring. It's a fish, uh, if you didn't know that. Uh, and uh, it becomes a red herring when it's cured. Really impressive, right? Um, what happens, though, when it gets cured is that it starts to stink really badly. And so besides being a life-saving thing for people who uh, needed food on trips and all that kind of stuff, the, the red herring actually became useful for uh, preparing hunting animals, and so when they were training horses and dogs, they would use red herring because they smelled so poorly, if you like herring because they're so pungent, I guess. Um, but they would use red herring to try and throw the animals off the scent. And so that when they're training these animals, they would, they would put them on the scent that they were trying to go after, a fox or a hare. And as they were following it, they would rub the red herring across the path to try and confuse the animal, to try and teach it, stop going after the red herring and, and stay on the right track. Because when you're hunting an animal, you want to make sure that you, you get that animal. You're not trying to find any animal, right? 
Well, uh, this was uh, common knowledge, uh, kind of from the, the 1500s and up, uh, but in uh, 1802, a man named William Cobbett, uh, he saw th- this red herring effect actually in the press, in, in the media, in the papers, and he called them out. What he saw was that, that the papers were focusing on uh, Napoleon and his supposed defeat to the detriment of actually talking about what was really happening in Britain at the time. And so he, was used, uh, he, 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 he called them out and said, you're using a red herring to throw off the people and confuse them from the real issues that matter for them. Now, the reason I've, I've said all this isn't because you need to know about this for, for say, but because our passage, this is what happens. See, in our passage, we meet the Sadducees, the kind of the, the, the final boss that Jesus has to go against from these different uh, groups at the Sanhedrin, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and now the, the Sadducees. They're going to try to trip him up with a question, a, a question devised in such a way that, that Jesus has to either agree with them or disagree with Moses. When you first read this passage, you might think, oh, it's about marriage, or oh, it's about resurrection. But at the end of the day, the the point of the passage is to get Jesus to disagree and disobey Moses. And if they can get Jesus to disagree and disobey Moses, they can write him off as a heretic. They can get rid of him, and he can be done with his ministry. That's the goal of the Sadducees. That's the goal of our passage. And so what, what I want us to see today it's something really, really clear in our passage. Um, it, it's basically this. Our posture towards God, and what we're going to see is the Sadducees' posture towards God, determines the age that we're living for, determines what we're living for, determines what we do. I don't want us to get confused with the, the end goal. The, the, the end goal for today is to clearly see God as being the one that we look to and that we trust and that we obey, and that he is the one that changes the way that we live. Marriage, this life, and life to come are things that help us understand that more fully. So uh, grab your Bibles, look at chapter 20, verses 27, all the way down to 40, and read it with me. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given to marriage, or are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage." For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Here's the shape of the passage that we're going to try to do. We're going to try to explain the passage, explain the people, explain the question, and then at the end, I want to apply it. And I want to ask the questions, what is our posture to God? What is our posture to Scripture? And what is our posture to this world? The the point of this is to say, who are we living to? Who are we living for? And what is our hope? So, first off, 
I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Sadducees. I'm sure this is what you were hoping to learn about today. The Sadducees, a little bit of background. Uh, these were a group of people, like I said, part of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is this group of men who were charged with ruling uh, Jerusalem, basically. Uh, they were in charge of, of keeping people in order, of making sure that the Romans didn't have to come in and wipe everything out. Uh, the Sadducees, though, were, were unique, they were the, the largest of the ruling class, so they had the most seats, they were the most powerful, and one of the reasons that they were most powerful is because they were descendants from the line of Levi, the, the priestly line, but more than just that, they were of the line of Zadok. If you love your Old Testament history, Zadok was the priest who was uh, over the temple during the time of King David. When King David's son Absalom tried to kill him and take the throne, Zadok was faithful both to God and to David. Now, over the years, the line of Zadok uh, was a line that proved itself to be faithful, proved itself to, to serve God and love God. At, at one time, in fact, they were the only priestly line from the Levitical group of men that were actually able to serve in the temple, and that's how we get to today with their seats in the Sanhedrin. Back in Ezekiel 40, 46, and then Ezekiel 44, 15, this is what, uh, what God tells uh, the people about the priests of Zadok. So the sons of Zadok, Ezekiel 40, says, who alone among the sons of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to me. There would have been lots of sons, there would have been lots in this tribe, but Zadok is the one who alone is able to come before God and minister to him in the temple. And then in Ezekiel 44, 15, uh, but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary, when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. Basically what this means is they had a complete and utter lock, a stranglehold on the temple and on leadership. There's nobody else. There's no other priestly line. There's no other group of, of people. There's nobody else. This is all there is. This sets them apart from the scribes and the Pharisees because the scribes and the Pharisees got to where they were by being married into the right families or, or by paying money or by knowing the right people. For the Sadducees, you had to be born into it. If you, if you weren't born into it, you couldn't serve in the temple. You, you couldn't be one of these men, which is what makes this so sad. They had a chokehold on the priesthood and they could do whatever they wanted with it. I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you've been in Banff and you've come out of a McDonald's and you've gone to start your car and your car won't start uh, and there's only one mechanic in town and you're on a trip uh, coming back from your home in Maple Ridge after you broke up with your girlfriend early while you were in Maple Ridge <laughs> and had to drive back uh, to, to Briarcrest uh, with her and her best friend but she didn't tell them that you were broken up and so it was really awkward and you're trying to find a mechanic in Banff, there's only one, and there's only one tow truck company, uh, and that one tow truck company was in another town at the time, so you have to sit there for nine hours trying to get the car over to the mechanic to finally find out that it's the fuel pump that broke down, and they don't have a fuel pump, and they have to spend like four days looking for it, and it's a few hundred dollars, and so you have to take a Greyhound back to Briarcrest in the middle of the night. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but... <laughs> It's really frustrating when you can't get a mechanic to fix your car when you need it, right? Like he's, he's the only one and, and that mechanic can do whatever they want. They can charge whatever they want. They can tell you whatever. There's no other mechanic. It's the same with the priesthood. There, there's nobody else. 
These men were the people charged by God to stand in the temple and offer sacrifices to atone for their sin to make them right with God. There's nobody else. They alone are the mediators of God's good presence. Well, they were supposed to be these, these men who served in, in the temple, obviously. And, and part of their wages for serving the temple that God had, had set up in, in, in the Old Testament was that they would get a, a cut of every piece of meat that came into the temple. So if it was a lamb, they got a cut. If it was a, a, an ox, they got a cut. They, they, they got fed by serving faithfully in the temple. Uh, but also, the other way they got paid was when people brought the tithe. And so this was, uh, God had said, you're supposed to bring these different, these different 10% of your, of your crops and of, of this and that, and you're supposed to bring it so the Levites, they would be able to get paid. They'd be able to live. They'd be able to go through life. They, they had no other way of making money. They were only supposed to serve in the temple. Well, the Levites, uh, now here as the Sadducees, uh, they, they've, they've tried to change their wages a little bit. We saw this in a story a few weeks ago where they didn't like their, their 10% and they didn't like just their, their boiled meat. They wanted something better. They wanted something different. And so they set up in the temple the, the practice of, of buying and selling animals and changing money. This is the Sadducees, the, the ones who were tasked with protecting God's temple and, and, and bringing people in to, to worship and, and to serve him and to be made right with God. They're the ones who actually added this whole extra step so that they could make money, so they could gain more power. The thing is, this did really make them extremely wealthy and also very worldly. But it wasn't just money or the priesthood. Their, their theology and their philosophy, their, their worldview had become very unique as well. A, a classic joke that you've probably heard many times is, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. That's a terrible joke, because they were really happy that there was no resurrection. They loved that there was no resurrection, because it meant there was no judgment they didn't, have to, they didn't have to worry about what God was going to do to them when they died. They just get to enjoy everything right here, right now. Which totally makes sense why they would live the way that they would live. Why they would set up the temple the way they set up. We might as well get whatever we can, as much as we can, and enjoy it all right now. Because there's no promise of another day. There's no promise of a future hope. They weren't sad. They, they loved it. And it made them materialists, people who became people who lived for this world. They didn't just reject the, the resurrection, though. They also rejected the notion that God intervened in the affairs of men at all, which is, is, is crazy. This, this group of, of rich men filled with privilege, tied to the world and everything, they, they were trying to just enjoy it all now. Kent Hughes, uh, uh, somebody who writes commentaries, Put it this way, they were a tight circle of mean-spirited religious aristocrats, insular, patrician, heartless, philosophical materialists. Josephus, a a Jewish uh, historian, called them more heartless than any other of the Jews. You're starting to get the feeling, I hope, that that, that these men, they would have made really good Disney movie villains, right? Like the, the Cruella de Vils who look forward to just getting everything they can, however they can get it, for their own enjoyment right now. And it's heartbreaking to see this because the role that they fulfilled, the the role that they sat in, was so important for God's people. They're the only ones who can offer the sacrifices necessary for, for the atonement of sin. 
The position that they had as, as temple leaders, as religious leaders, even as political leaders, meant that Jesus was an utter threat. When he turned over the temple tables and, and cast out the money lenders and, and the animals, it was a threat to their, their finances. When he started teaching about the resurrection and this new life, it was a threat to, to judgment to come. When he starts drawing this crowd of people, this excitement around this new king, it was a threat to their little kingdom. Because if, if they failed to keep the peace, Rome would come in and everything that they had would be lost. And if all you have is right here, right now to make you happy, you have to protect it at all costs. Even if it means killing the son of God. And so these men... They come to Jesus and they put before him their double herring red question. Red herring question. These men are looking to maintain control of this present age. And so what is their question? Well, they propose a question so illogical that there should be no rational answer to it. They're trying to show the ridiculousness of the resurrection because of what the law of Moses says. They're trying to create an opportunity, like I said at the beginning, where Jesus is going to disagree and therefore disobey Moses and he can be written off as a heretic and he can be killed. So they ask the question. Look at verse 27 to 33. Then came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a, bro a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there are seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Like I said, they're, they're trying to ask a question so crazy that there should be the, no way to answer it without looking either silly or going against what? the law had said. So the law that, that the, the Sadducees are trying to point to comes from Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 6, which says this, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and he has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." The goal of this command, the goal of this law, this provision, was that they didn't want uh, family lines, family trees to be wiped out. They, they wanted to make sure that there was uh, this development, that this growth, that, that family wealth, that family name, that family property would be passed on appropriately. That, that there wouldn't be uh, sudden ends to family lines. It was about posterity. And this wasn't just a situation that never needed to be thought through. In fact, in Jesus' own family lineage, there's, there's two times where we see this happen. You can read about them in, in depth, but the first happens in Genesis 38, where uh, Judah, uh, one of the, the 12 uh, patriarch's sons, uh, he has three sons himself. His first son gets a wife named Tamar. Uh, he's a wicked son, and God puts him to death. Now, uh, Judah says to his younger brother, go and take this wife and, and get a son for your brother, and doesn't want to do it. He, he doesn't fulfill the role that he's supposed to fulfill, and instead, he also is wicked. Uh, and there's many reasons why. The main one is, is wealth. Well, 
family, you know, family wealth split three ways is, is a lot less than split two ways. And the first son got a double portion. So if I don't give my older brother a son, I'll become the first son, I'll get a double portion, and there's less of it to split. Well, the third son is supposed to go in then and, and take, the, take the wife, Tamar, and, and have a son. Uh, but Judah, the father, gets a little scared. <laughs> he, he thinks that maybe the problem is that Tamar is cursed or something's wrong with Tamar that my sons keep dying. The whole story shows the, the, the faithfulness of God through the sinfulness of man, and it's wonderful. Genesis 38, go and read it yourself. But we see that God fulfills his promises through even this. But it also shows up in uh, the story of Ruth and Boaz in this, the book of Ruth, where uh, Ruth is, is married, uh, her, her husband dies, uh, the brother actually dies, they come back into, into Israel, and they're trying to figure out what to do. Uh, they find out that this man named Boaz is somebody who can redeem her and, and fulfill this duty that, um, that the brother was supposed to do. And from that line, we get King David. The point being, this isn't some far-off question that nobody's ever had to think through. They're, they're just trying to make it as complex and weird as possible to make it sound really dumb. The other thing that's actually really interesting about this, and I, I just thought about it this week as I was looking at this, uh, the reason that this, that this line of Zadok, the, the Sadducees are here, there's probably many times, actually, that Leverite marriage was used to keep their line intact. Uh, the, the sons of Zadok, they were the only tribe that could actually uh, drag a line back to Zadok. They're, they're the only ones who could have a family tree intact during the exile. They, they probably actually benefited from this very law themselves. But it's not just a, about the marriage thing. The, the other is, is, is trying to, to, to make it absurd about eternal life. See, the belief of the day was that eternal life, this, this next life to come, if you did get it, was just an extension of the, the good things that you had here. So it was just like normal life, but just, just better. So it was, it was this plus a little bit. And, and if that's the case, then it, it makes sense. Marriage and, and sex, uh, finances, jobs, family lines, all that stuff would continue to go in this, this new age. The question makes sense then, because seven brothers having a single wife can't happen. Again, that breaks another law of Moses. Leviticus 18.16 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. The, the, the point being, you can't share one wife between seven brothers. But divorce also isn't the thing permitted. And so what are we going to do, Jesus? Clearly, there's no good answer to this. That's why eternal life, this, this newness of life, can't be real. But here's the thing. Uh, Jesus isn't concerned about what their, their trick question is. And he's not concerned about what they're saying. What he points to is, is how foolish their question really is. What, what he does is actually shows how little they understand and know about the law. And he's going to show them that he has perfect knowledge and understanding of the heart and the purpose of the law, not just the letter of it. And so read with me, verses 34 to 38. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
Now, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live to him. He starts off by, by not attacking whether or not there is a resurrection, but the difference in and, and the better age to come. How, how, much, how much further, in, in terms of experience, we will have of, of God and of eternity compared to what we have now. See, he says, in this age, people are concerned about things like money and marriage, wealth, family, jobs, success. What he's doing is laying bare the hearts and the desires of the Sadducees. So the question they ask about the law that they point to is concerned about wealth, passing it on, purity, and sexual relationships in, in life now. It, it's about how can I enjoy life most right now? And I can understand if you're, if you're reading this passage and you see Jesus say something like, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given to marriage. Your heart might skip a beat. If you have a good marriage, you just got married, you're hoping to get married, married you might think, well, am I not going to be missing out on something in eternity? Is there some shortfall that I'm going to have if I don't get married? I just want to say that the truth that Jesus is trying to show is how much better eternity will be than the shadow of things that we have now. Marriage is supposed to be a pointer to something greater. The marriage that we have now is supposed to point to the unity that we're going to have with God perfectly in eternity, which is far better than any good relationship, great relationship now. What he's going to point to in so many ways is that the experiences of eternity uh, far outweigh anything that we could hold onto and grasp onto right now, which is why the rejection of sin is, is so good, because there's something better that we'll experience than sin, than, than, than temporary fulfillment and joy right now. See, what, where Jesus is concerned is about the preparation for the life to come. There's going to be a clear delineation, a change of types with the removal of, of sin and these broken bodies to the perfection of being God's sons, God's, um, God's children, sons of the resurrection. And he uses three terms in concert to bring it to a kind of a crescendo, his point. Verse 36 says, we'll be equal to angels, sons of God, and sons of the resurrection. By comparing us now to, to angels, Jesus is revealing something that will be true of us that's not true of us right now. What he's pointing to is that there will be a change in, in nature, in both beauty and strength, in, in mind and body. Our, our minds will be enlarged and able to fully understand and see the spiritual realities that we cannot see right now. There's something better. We'll be faultless, unable to sin, unable to die, unable to be hurt or have pain, which sounds better than any treatment or anything money can buy right now. We'll also, like the picture in Isaiah or, or in Revelation, be like the angels worshiping around the throne. The thing that we were most fulfilled in doing, we will do for eternity. Perpetually having joy and freedom unknown to us in terms of our, our knowledge and love and worship of God. Better than anything we can experience today. There's nothing in this world that can hold a candle to the reality of eternity in the fullness of relationship with God, which is what we were created for. That's supposed to be what we rejoice over, thinking of that reality 
That, that, that's supposed to be what, what stirs our hearts to reject living for this world and this life now because there's something far better. This is what Romans 8 tells us all about. And then finally, we have the, the face-off where Jesus finally takes Moses and, and shows what Moses is really saying and what Moses is talking about. It doesn't disobey and doesn't disbelieve and doesn't go against, but helps us understand fully. And so Jesus meets them in the Pentateuch, right? The, the only authority that they believed that the scriptures had was in the Pentateuch. I'm, I'm sure they loved Ezekiel 40 and 44 that talked about how they were the only ones who could be in the temple. But the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those were the only ones they pointed to and taught about. And so Jesus meets them there. And because there's no explicit teaching in the Pentateuch that says there is a resurrection, they thought they had Jesus. That's where they had built their theology from, which is crazy. Because if you have read Genesis to Deuteronomy, the fingerprints of God are all over it. They had built this theology that, that there was no resurrection and that God did not care in the affairs of, of man. But everything from the creation account to the fall to, to taking on Noah and, and, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the way through to, the, to Moses and, and the Red Sea and the plagues and the wilderness wanderings and giving them the law and the tabernacle and, and all of these things, you would imagine they would say, well, clearly God, God cares about us. Clearly God is, is interested in what's going on. So Jesus quotes to them a passage that dismantles both of the arguments, both of the beliefs that they have, that God doesn't care and that there is no resurrection. And he uses one of the most well-known stories from the book of Exodus. Exodus 3, in the burning bush, where Moses is on a mountain and he sees a bush burning but not being burnt up and he goes over to look at it and this is what God says to him. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The simple logic that Jesus gives is this. God speaks to Moses about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the present tense, which makes no sense if they're dead. You, you would never speak about someone who has passed away as if they're living right beside you in the present tense. It, it, it's, a, it's weird. That, that, that's the thing that doesn't make sense. Of course there's eternal life, Jesus is saying. The patriarchs are living with God right now. But the, the second question is, why is there a resurrection? Well, as one commentator put it, the three patriarchs enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God that was so dynamic, so profound, that it demanded a continued living relationship with God after death. That the patriarchs lived because God promised to them. Not because of what they had done, not what they had earned, but because of God's promise to them which is good news for us. Because this same promise is the one we have, that, that, that God has, has come into a covenant relationship with us, where through the, the blood of Jesus, by faith we trust that that is enough to save us from our sins and from the death that we deserve, and we can live with God forever, that he will cleanse us of our sin and our unrighteousness, and we will be saved. See, the resurrection of, of Jesus and the resurrection of our souls is the promise of the gospel. 
1 Corinthians 15, 6 to 9 says this, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who had fallen asleep in Christ have, have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people most to be pitied. And the reason he could say that is because his life was full of suffering and pain and service. Sadducees were the ones who were being served, who were living a life of, of fullness. See, Jesus in the New Testament give us a really complete picture. If sin can't stop God from saving, then death can't stop us from experiencing the fullness of the promises he's given us. Not only is, is God interested in the affairs of his creation, but he's willing to sustain his creation for eternity because of his own covenant promises. Is the good news that we have. So the question is, as we, we look at this passage and we try not to get distracted, uh, leads us here. The, the Sadducees had tried to create a question and tried to create a theology and had tried to create a relationship with God that was so clear to see from the, from the outside. They believed that God was far away and didn't care. They believed that scripture only mattered if it was the stuff that built up their theology and, and assured them of what they wanted. And it meant that they could live however they wanted. The question for us is, is what is our posture? How do we approach God? How do we approach his, his word? How do we approach living the life that we have today? Mark uh, 12, 24 is a, a parallel passage that talks about Jesus and his, uh, his, uh, his showdown with the Sadducees. And at the end, Jesus says this, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? See, what, I, what I've come to see in this passage is that the, the reason that we live the way we live, the, the, the reason we live for, for this age or the age to come is directly in relation to how we see God and his scriptures. We will live however we want if we don't believe there's judgment. We will live however we want if, if we don't understand grace, forgiveness. See, poor thoughts about God will lead to us living poorly. When we don't see God the way he truly is and we don't see scripture the way it truly is, it will allow us to live however we want. In sin and rebellion. The Sadducees had created a system of belief that rejected God's place in their life and any accountability for their actions. God was not someone who needed to be honored or worried about. It was almost as if they believed he was too busy, had something better to do, or he just didn't care. And their posture towards God was so clear in this. Which is why when Jesus shows up, calling himself the, the, the son of God, doing these miracles that could not be explained, uh, having this teaching and this knowledge, this insight that is greater than anything that they had, well, they had to take care of him. He was a, a direct attack on everything they stood for and believed. So what about us? When we, when we look at, at, at God, who do we see? Who, who is God? 
Is he someone who is worthy to be worshipped with all of our lives? Is he someone who is willing to to live sacrificially and, and to suffer knowing that he is good and that he is sovereign, that he created everything and that he is sustaining everything, that he has given us through the spirit the ability to have our eyes and our minds open, regenerated so that we could see our sin and our need for his salvation. How do you see God? Is is he the one that you owe your whole life to and everything to? Is Is he the one that you think is worth every bit of your life in this life and in the life to come. Because how we respond, how we see God is going to determine what we actually do. What's our posture to God? Do we worship him? Do we love him? The second question, what's our posture towards God's word? Like I said, it was really clear what the Sadducees thought. These five books, we can control this. This is our theology. But even the way they, they went after it was, was letter of the law. See, they wanted to control it. They didn't want it to control them. Maybe, maybe you're here and, and you're struggling with this right now. Where you're looking at all of scripture and there's, there's so many things it calls you to. There's there's things that the scriptures teach that are not comfortable and they're not easy. They they call us not to a life of of ease and and pleasure and hedonism, but they call us to give up and to serve and to look forward to something better. Maybe you're somebody who looks at the Bible and says, well, I'll I'll trust the red letters of Jesus. But you know, everything else, that's, that's harder to trust. Or maybe I'm just a, I'm a New Testament person. Do we come to scriptures looking for what it says to us? Or are we looking for what we want it to say? Are we coming with absurd questions or ideas that maybe we can easily write off that the Bible can't answer? Maybe, maybe word for word things that we're looking for. I've heard this from many people. We've been talking about holiness before marriage or in marriage, and they'll point and they'll say, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says exactly what I can or can't do. But the heart, don't you, don't you see the heart? Don't you see what God has, has set up for you that's good? Yeah, but it doesn't say that I can't do this. It doesn't, it doesn't say that I can't push this boundary. Maybe... You look at the Bible and you, and you look at the New Testament, you look at the teachings of Jesus and you say, the, the apparent silence of Jesus on, on something like homosexuality means that it's open for me. It means that I don't have to look at the heart. It doesn't even have to look at all of scripture and understand. It just means if, if Jesus didn't say it, I don't have to follow it because that's the most important thing, right? Jesus. Or maybe even something like that hits close to home for us is something like tithing. You know, there's no clear percentage is it after-tax dollars or pre-tax dollars? Right? Like, what is it? Are you, are you pushing back on the Bible or, or maybe large portions of it because it doesn't have what you're looking for or what you want? That's not what it's there for. 
It's therefore to, to shape us and, and to give us a view of who God is and what he has done, the salvation that we can walk in and the life that we can live because of it. What's our posture towards scripture? Do we submit and listen and want even more of what God is calling us to even when it costs us? And then finally, what's our posture towards this world? Again, we, we see in the Sadducees their, their, their lifestyle, the way that they lived, willing to put Jesus to death, willing to send people to entrap, willing to rip people off in the temple of God. They were hedonists, living for the pleasure of the day. There was nothing greater than enjoying today as much as possible. The warning that Jesus gives them is a warning for us too. The, the sons of this age are worried about this age. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they're worried about that. The, the better things, the, the things that all of this world point to. Our posture towards God and towards scripture is gonna show up in the way that we live life today. The way that we use our money and our time and our talents, the way that we treat people, the way that we talk. See, Jesus shows us what we should be investing in, where we should be storing up our treasure, what we should be building towards. Towards that thing, that, that place where there's no death, no mourning, no sadness, no loss, where there will be perfect living in unity with God and his people. There will be a fuller revelation of Jesus and our experience with him that we could ever imagine here. Eternal joy and worship and thanksgiving that will grow forever as we understand and love God more fully. What age are you living for? God has given us many gifts now. He's given us time. He's given us money. He's given us friendships. He's given us marriages. He's given us children and parents. And they're good things. But they're not ultimate. They're pointers. I mean, one of the reasons that, that eternity is so great is that there is, there is no more death, no, no more worried about what happens tomorrow. There is full assurance of life with him. What's your posture towards this world and towards the world that is coming? Are we living for today or for eternity? My hope for us today is that we would not get distracted by the red herrings in this world. The, the, the things that go across our, our, our paths that are leading towards eternal life. That by trusting in Jesus alone, we would be able to ignore those things that draw us away from the eternal life that God has given us. My hope is that we would reject temporary delights and pleasures and trappings, that you would be able to stay locked onto the hope of Jesus and that you would be like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that, that for them, God is the God not of the dead but of the living and that that can be true for us as well, that all of us can live to him. Would that be our hope? Would that be our, our hearts today? Would you pray with me to that end? Jesus, God, I thank you for this world and I thank you for these lives that you've given us, uh, for many of the gifts 
of the talents, of, of the pleasures. You even tell us in 1 Timothy 6 that you've given us all these things to enjoy. That This isn't a bad world, but it's not the world we need to live for. God, I pray that you'd help our hearts to see eternal life, the, the hope that we can have of what that relationship looks like, of, of the never-ending enjoyment of you, the fuller joy and that, God, the more that we are with you, the more we will worship, the more we will be filled with love and satisfaction. And, God, I pray that right now we would see that. God, would our, our, our eyes be opened to see you so clearly, the type of, of God you are, that the person you are, that we can be in relationship with you now, and that, God, you are better than anything that this world has to offer. God, help us to submit to you, to submit to your world, your word, and to live for the age to come. God, we pray this all in your name. Amen.